This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, welcome back to the podcast. This is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska. Hello. This is a special one today, Tom. Well, uh, topical. I know it comes out after the fact, but it's something that um, we've both... Well, just a week. Just about a week. About about a week or so, yeah. Um, Yeah. We've talked about, but before, um, as far as, you know, we've both taught it, it's uh, something that, um, I guess, for be honest, myself, I'm very interested in. I've researched. I've been there. It's one of the few places, I guess, I can say that I've been that you haven't because you usually go to these places. I know. You got me beat. Yeah. (laughs) So we are talking about... Pearl Harbor. Yes, the attack on Pearl uh, Harbor. Spe- I was going to say more, more specifically the um, attack at Pearl, on Pearl Harbor. And um, I think it's really special because actually the very first time you and I had a conversation ever was about Pearl Harbor. That is true. That is true. That is well, true. Pearl so, Harbor, uh, all lesson plans. Yes. Um, when we were in college and uh, Tom and I did not know each other yet, we were in the same class and we were put in a group together to do a research project and presentation. And um, that's how I met Tom. And the research project and presentation was Pearl Harbor. I think I just said, like, I have a bunch of stuff in Pearl Harbor. Let's just do that. And I said, let's do it. And then that was it. And that was, you know, that was 20 something, 20 years ago there, but it's fun, you know? So uh, full circle, 20th episode, nearly 20 years. And uh, I would do a podcast about the attack on Pearl Harbor. Look at that. And now we're doing a a podcast. I'm fine. Time flies when you're having fun. And I always said, every time I teach this lesson, and it's actually I haven't taught um, this curriculum of United States history too for probably three years now. But every time I was Pearl Harbor, I always made sure I dressed up nice for that lesson. And my students always knew that, oh, it's Pearl Harbor Day. Like I always made it like a special um, special lesson, special day, whenever Pearl Harbor was um, being taught. Well, actually for me, and even when I didn't... Um... Like you said, if you haven't taught it, if I, if I didn't teach it that year forever, I wasn't teaching US2, whatever, other teachers would invite me in <laughs> to teach that lesson and just talk about it. It's like, yeah, this is your thing. Go ahead. Like, so, yeah, that was, that, that was, that was kind of what, you know, went around. I was, I was doing that for a while, too, when I wasn't teaching it. So, yeah, no, it's something that um, I've always just found interesting for, you know, a bunch of reasons, turning point in American history, where it was, um, fact that when I was younger, my grandfather told me stories about it because he wound up going to war. He, he was um, volunteered for the Navy shortly after the attack, like many thousands of others did at that time. My dad, when he was in the Air Force, was stationed and lived in, in uh, Hawaii, served at Pearl Harbor for a number of years. Um, so, you know, it was something I just kind of grew up knowing about. So when I started getting more and more information as I got older, I remember actually being, I was probably the only person that was excited knowing they were making that uh, Pearl Harbor movie. And historically, yeah. it's a pretty good movie. The, you want to yeah. argue, we're not going to, well, we'll do it. That's a future podcast. We'll do a history Hollywood <laughs> breakdown of Pearl Harbor, Ben Affleck. But, um, Indeed. But they did actually, like, that was filmed at Pearl Harbor. And they actually had, like, recommissioned zeros that, like, flew over and yeah. rebombed Pearl Harbor, like, the same flight patterns. Like, it was very historically accurate history-wise it's just the movie other parts was like yeah yeah you know, they tried to make it like right? titanic and it didn't work no yeah that's right because it's pearl harbor it's Pearl Harbor. all right okay so let's uh i figured it, the plan is um let's kind of run through 
like the causes of what you know kind of what led to this and okay. we could probably start off with just japanese ambitions and expansion in the pacific in the early yeah. 1930s yeah. so we'll kind of start there and then we'll get to the actual attack and then after the attack we'll maybe we'll talk about some of the blunders or conspiracy theories as to why um you know some people say that fdr was directly not responsible but um i guess you could say responsible he, he kind of wanted pearl harbor to happen yeah and you can make so, that argument without making a conspiracy theory we'll talk about that yeah yes so let's kind of start with uh the long-term causes i, well, guess. I would let's say we probably with... have to go really far back with that to the um perry you're gonna go perry aren't you the, well yeah matthew, I would, yeah. Perry. matthew perry the the commodore not the guy from friends and yes. um yeah, because it, well, really, the Asian imperialism, right? Because what's going on basically is, well, Japan sees what's happening. Well, they get opened up by Perry, right? The idea is Perry comes in and the Japanese are very... This is 1853. Yeah, the Japanese at this time are very closed off. Isolation. They're closed off to the outside world. And if anyone ever tried to really trade with them, they do a little bit, but nothing crazy they would kill them or they would refuse. Like it was very, uh, they still feel this, they had the samurais, all that stuff is still there. Um, and Perry kind of opens it up because he fires his cannons over what is now Tokyo Bay. And the Japanese just, there's a saying or there's a, how it goes is the samurai who are standing there look at their swords as these cannons are firing and they're like, there's nothing, that's it. There's, there's no, our way of life is over. There's no way that we can combat something like that, these warships that are there. And they were there just to intimidate the, Jap- the Japanese into opening their doors to trade with the West, basically. Yes, again, this is following um, the Mexican-American War, where the United States finally gets um, the Western portion of mainland U.S., which is the reason for it was to open up trade in Asia. And shortly after the end of the war, Commodore Matthew Perry, like you said, takes four ships, uh, sails to Tokyo Harbor, um, to try to reestablish uh, regular trade between Japan and the United States, 1853. And then what's going on also is that Asian imperialism is the Japanese see what's happening to other parts of Asia, particularly China, and they don't want that to happen to themselves. So we're kind of fast forwarding a little bit here. Yeah. But they see what's there. They see what's going on there, and they're like, we don't want that happening to us. And essentially, what is going on is European nations have created these spheres of influence in China, where they are the subdividing uh, the mainland China to not really t- per se take over the areas, but they essentially, by having these spheres of influence, they control various economies um, and really areas, right? I mean, they control yeah, I mean, Japan. It's not, it's, not like a, it's not colonies, but it's, it is almost like colonies. They have, like you said, yes. those spheres of influence. And it's all the major European powers. You have, you have Germany there. You have, you know, obviously the French, the British. Was, yeah. The, 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 the Boxer Rebellion. Yeah, the, the Russians are there. Every, everyone's there. Japan is actually there, too. They're actually they're getting in on this because Japan sees this. And what they do very quickly on is they, they westernize, I guess you can say it, right? They get the Germans at this point. The, um, they have them come in and teach their army things. They have the British teach them the Navy. They're buying American goods, really like Gatling guns and stuff like that. And they're basically mm-hmm. just trying to westernize in some way in order to not get taken over they're going to they're going to imperialize instead of be the imperial z is basically what they plan on doing and that, that's yeah. that's their plan and then what kind of makes the big powers or makes an issue here is um the spanish-american war also 
um, mm-hmm. because the United States beats Spain very quickly, and we get overseas empires. The Spanish overseas empire, particularly, we get. If you look at all the ter- a lot of the territories that the Americans get in 1898, um, right with that treaty, yes. those are all battles in World War II. And there's no yes. coincidence that that's the case. You have the Philippines, you have Guam, you have Midway, all those islands, and it's that's where World War II is in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And they get that because at this point now, it's the United States and the Japanese are the two naval powers, are the two um, like powerful. You, you said they're the biggest yeah. powers, yeah, in the Pacific, in the Pacific at, at time. that time. They're the only two because, especially after after the uh, Russo Russo Japanese War when they beat Japan when when Russia when Japan beats Russia. And that, mm-hmm. sh- and that shocks the world. So, all right, we, we covered a lot right there. But that kind of that kind of ushers in why this is going to happen. Yeah, I would say those would be like the, your your long term causes. Yeah, that's like so a dominant. Yeah, yeah, and then getting a little shorter. So Japan's ambitions are growing, right? They they want to become this uh, not necessarily major world power, but they definitely want to dominate um, the Pacific. And yeah. um, they want an Asia for Asians, the, the co Asian prosperity sphere. But they want they're going to be the ones in charge. Yeah, they, they they call it a Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. Yeah, right? There's um, a lot of racism amongst amongst the uh, the Asian powers at this time too, and the Jap the Japanese see themselves as the the highest on that on that totem pole, I guess you could say. Yes, similarly to what's happening in Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, Japan starts to essentially broaden their borders, and what they do is in 1931, um, Japan. First of all, Japan is extremely upset after World War One. Um, yeah, they believe yeah, that at the yeah. Treaty of Versailles, they were not taken seriously as a major power, and they believe that they warranted enough, um, their actions warranted enough to be considered a power, but they weren't. They were very much, and I think this is kind of a lot, a lot to do with racism, they were very much discarded um, and not really paid attention to yeah. uh, the Treaty of Versailles. And then that kind of propels them to really like militarize, militarize, militarize and right? also seek alliances with the other powers that didn't like the Treaty of Versailles, which in this yeah. case would be Italy and Germany. So that kind exactly. of, that's a, you know, they're all mad really at, at the British and the French, especially where it comes down to. You can throw us in there too when I said Americans, but not, we don't sign the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah. Technically, um, not technically, we don't. Um, so, yeah. so that kind of, it's really, they're mad at the other European, they're mad at those European powers and they're, they're not taking seriously. Remember, Japan is a big Navy at this point and under some of those treaty conditions, they're supposed to actually reduce their own Navy. They're not allowed to have, they have that ratio, right? Where they're not allowed to build mm-hmm. ships until the British build more ships. And Japan's yeah. like, why, why can't we, have, if we can build more ships, we should be allowed to, we, we shouldn't have to wait for the British to build more ships before we can build more ships. So it's that, that kind of mindset too. So 1931, right? A militarist um, take control in Japan's government, and essentially it, they invade a Chinese province of Manchuria. Uh, within several months, Japanese troops controlled the entire province. It's it's this huge region, about twice the size of Texas. It was very rich in natural resources, and that's kind of natural resources becomes the key here, yeah. because Japan is an island nation. It's they a set none. of islands. They and, have none. They have no natural resources, so they attacked and took over Manchuria or part of you know. Um, which they then renamed Manchuko, part of China for these natural resources. And this was a significant test of power of the League of Nations that was created at the end of World War I because you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to take over other nations. Yeah. So the League sends representatives to Manchuria to investigate the situation. And they realize how like vicious and cruel the Japanese treatment of local Chinese people is. So the report condemns Japan and basically says, um, you can't do that. You have to withdraw from there. So in 
in return, Japan just quits the league. They're like, yeah, yeah well, you know what? We quit. They give a speech. I think I remember seeing the newsreel. They give, they give like a speech and they just walk out. That's it. It's done. Yeah. And, and the League of Nations doesn't dissolve then, but that's basically is the end of the League of Nations. Because they told them to stop and they didn't. It's not like today when I guess the United Nations would send in troops or they could put more severe economic sanctions in place. That doesn't happen. The only country that could really do anything was the United States at this point. Yes. And some of the stuff right. that we do, I guess we want to get to that now. So we can get to that. Yeah, you and I was going to kind of just say that by 37, yeah. Hideki Tojo, right? He's like chief of staff of Japan's army. Uh, he's like the militarist guy in Japan. He launches a further invasion into mainland China yeah. in 37. And that's when there's a fear because now we have the, there's French, Dutch, British colonies um, in Indochina. They're all kind of laying unprotected in Asia. And now there's a fear like, wait a second, Japan might actually encroach upon European possessions. Yeah. And, and, and it's after 37. Those powers aren't exactly. going to do anything because they're worried about what Hitler's doing in Germany, in, exactly. in, in Europe. So they're not, they can't really worry about what's going on in their province, in these provinces and with their territories in China because they got to focus on, you know, the mainland first. Yeah. And this is like you said, this is where the U.S. kind of steps into yeah. this, right? So what does the United States do? Well, one of some big, big, biggest things they basically do is they put um, massive amounts of restrictions on the Japanese. Uh, economic embargoes, which over the years just get worse and worse, 37, 38, 39, 40, um, to the point where we put a total um, oil embargo because Japan imported all of its oil and they got most of their oil from the United States. Back in the 40s, the United States was the number one producer of oil in the world. So yes. we just said, we're not giving you oil and we also ref- we're not giving you any metal, like scrap metal. You're not getting it from the United States anymore. And they got, I think, 80% of like their oil and scrap metal from the United States, which would just... Yep. It would destroy their um, their war machine. They couldn't. Yep. They wouldn't be able to wage war without getting these supplies from the United States. And we knew this. And that, that's something to keep in mind as this breaks on. Because you re- we remember we had a um, teacher in college. I'm not going to say his name, but I do remember yep. him. He he did a lot of studying in Japan. And he yep. was he remember him telling us, and I remember reading this too. And since then, that the Japanese saw that oil embargo as in their eyes. And their government, that was a, a declaration of war. Because now you're not yeah. letting us wage war. So that is a declaration of war. Because we said, listen, we will give you this oil and we will give you the scrap metal back, but you have to withdraw all of your troops from China. And they're like, no, we've been fighting here, like you said, since 31. We're not just going to stop. Yep. So, and they kind of like, you know, we're, they're looking at each other. The US and the Japanese are basically staring at each other in the eyes and trying to figure out, you know, what, what's next? Who's going to make the next move? What's going to be the next move? As both sides are really like, you know, is a war really going to break out from this? And someone, um, I forgot what the author was that I read, made an argument that up to this point, so now we're getting up to like, you know, July, summer of 1941, and which is when the U.S. totally kind of said, no, you guys are out. It's like almost like an ultimatum. You know what I mean? You either pull out of China or we're, we're not going to give you your oil. But up to that point, while Japan is taken over, because, you know, Manchuria and then by July of 41, they actually do take Indochina. So they take Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. And an argument could be made, I know this author made this argument, that they essentially took over a lot of Asia with American oil, which is why there was a lot of pushback in the United States against President Roosevelt and overall about American policy. Like, you are fueling... You're fu- we were fueling their war machine. Absolutely. Exactly. Right? And especially since, like, uh, you know... Uh, evidence came out about the rape of Nanking, like, you know, when you're talking about how 
the Japanese soldiers treated, you know, raped women and treated people uh, through China, through their um, conquest of China. Again, there was a lot of issues coming up in American newspapers. Like, wait a second, we're like yeah, there, fueling there were some of that. But remember, also at this time, people are also more focused on what Hitler is doing. Yes, and then we were talking about that because when war does break out, and we'll get to how that breaks out, most Americans didn't even know we were having problems with the Japanese. If you actually pull yes. them. It was kind of very similar. I remember in, um, when the United States invaded Afghanistan, you could go and pull people and they couldn't really tell you where Afghanistan was on a map. That's kind of what it was in the 40s with Japan. Most Americans had no idea where Japan was if you showed them on a map. They yeah. were just kind of out of sight, out of mind. And even in, that's why a lot of them thought it had to be a German plan. You know, They made the Japanese yeah. do it. They just couldn't give the Japanese credit for it. So let's kind of bring us to Pearl Harbor. Uh, essentially, World War II, as we know, it started in September of 1939, and that is with Hitler in Europe. So when Pearl Harbor is attacked in December of 1941, the world has already been at war for a year and a half. We have not. As, a, as the country, as a nation, the United States has chosen uh, to become or stay rather neutral, uh, neutral and isolationist. Somewhat. Yeah. And again, that, that's another podcast in itself because, you know, we're kind of... Tom Hanks movie being... kind of said otherwise, right? Yeah, right. And uh, and our isolationism is kind of a little questionable in, in how we go about doing that. But... We're not, we're not Japan... actively engaging. Yeah, we're the country's not exactly. at war. All right. And um, so by November 5th, 1941, um, Hideki Tojo... The Japanese, you know, Japanese prime minister. So he meets with Emperor Hirohito. Yamamoto, and, right? Yep. And basically they decide uh, that they're going to start preparing an attack on the United States. And the premise is that they want to strike the U.S. really just to buy time. Yeah. I mean, they know, that, they know they're not going to win. Yeah. Well, they know they're not. They're not trying to take over the United States. That was always something. Exactly. I, they, there's, I've, I read a lot of stuff about like Yamamoto's journals and stuff like talking to him. Yamamoto was a little bit different from a lot of the other Japanese generals. He actually went to school in the United States. Harvard, right? Harvard, or something yeah. like that. And he's, yeah. he toured, he lived there for like eight years. So he knew a little bit more. He went in the, like the old West. The Japanese believed there was, there's, there was like these bad stereotypes on both sides. And they believed that Americans lived this life of luxury. So there was no way, and they were all separated. It was a vast land, right? The people in Texas were very different from the people in New Jersey and stuff like that. And there was no way that they were going to come together no matter what. So that if you strike them quickly, they're not going to want to go to war. They're going to want to build their refrigerators and their stuff like that and their cars. So beat them really quick, have a strong defense around the area we can take very quickly when we drive them back. It's going to be so expensive in not just um, like materials, but in manpower and lives that they're going to sue for some type of, of truce. They know they're not going to fight a war with the United States because the United States, even though we didn't, we weren't a military power really at that point, everyone was aware of the potential of the United States as military power when it came to our production, when it came to our resources. Um, so that was, a, that was their main goal. And Yamamoto actually states that. He says, listen, we go to war. He doesn't want to go to war with the United States. He tries to convince them otherwise. And that's been stated. Yeah, you guys have been yep. Yeah, but he basically says, listen, I'm going to do what I'm told. If you want to and you want to do this, I'll plan the attack. And he says, for a year, I can guarantee success. He says, after that, I guarantee nothing. Because I, by that point, after a year, the United States will be full out war mode. And then uh, yeah, mobilized. Fully yeah. mobilized. They're going to have everything ready to go. And he's like, at that point, 
when if we're not getting oil some other way because our oil will be like running running really low by that point we're done we're, we're, we there's no chance of victory so but they still say no we're, we're gonna remember the japanese haven't lost in like seven years any war they beat russia they're not worried about the united states they're not yeah. looking at this as like this is going to be a difficult war we're just going to beat this have a couple quick battles knock them out that's it and essentially, they wanted to knock them out because going back to what we said earlier is that the United States poses the only threat the Pacific, to yeah. their yeah to their power in the Pacific. So by knocking the U.S. out, it essentially gives them a free hand to take over any land that they wish in the Pacific that they need to take over for more natural resources and, and oil as well. Yeah. So the idea Taylor is that... Him, do what you want. He, he says the Pacific is yours. Yep. Asia is yours. Yep. And, you know, if the United States is knocked out, even for a year, by that time, Japan hoped that they would get enough natural resources that even when the United States picked itself up within a year, by then Japan would be too powerful for the United States. Too powerful to, to beat. Yeah, they would just, it would be too yes. much of a stalemate. It would be like World War One. Let's just make a truce. So um, let's kind of run up to Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam, so Vietnam. Let's run up to, do like a little, I guess, run up to Pearl Harbor. One thing that's really interesting in, in all of this is that the United States actually cracked the Japanese secret code. Pretty early right? on, yeah. Yeah, um, probably like almost two years before uh, Pearl Harbor. And we basically, without Japan's knowledge, listen to encrypted ciphers, right? We listen to every secret yeah. message, every secret message that went everywhere from Japan. And this was called uh, the War Department called this um procedure uh magic that's what we called it mm -hmm. so every time it was magic messages that would get through that's kind of what becomes a, a, an issue here because through these magic uh messages that we are decoding we are starting to really kind of find out that japan is up to something they're planning something, um, yeah. we're aware they're planning there's gonna be yeah. something yeah and you know we know that they're planning something against the united states we know how upset they are against the united states at the same time, Japan actually sends envoys to the U.S. to discuss peace, right? This is happening in November of 41. Like, all right, listen, uh, we need your oil and you want us to get out of China. Let's, you know, let's get down to talking about peace. But really, this was just a stall tactic by the Japanese. Yeah, no intention um, of it, yeah. And that's, no what, and that's what, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Pete, but that's what, when this comes out, you have to remember this. I always used to, like, really tell my students and stuff because this is what really proves that this is what really upsets the americans excuse me is the fact that they're presenting peace but they had no real um plan intent. for peace no no real intent for peace they were, they're yeah. going to war once those ships leave and they leave in november they come to united yeah. they get to hawaii that yeah. the war is on they, they, they've committed they're not going to call those ships back so then that's what really angers the united states so what we're getting here in these messages is we, there's this belief um, in the State Department, the United States, that the intended target is Philippines. the Philippines. Yeah. Which, would, which makes right? sense. Yes, we have a military base in the Philippines. Um, it, it does make sense that that's where they would be going. And even though the magic uh, messages never specifically say Pearl Harbor, um, they kind of allude to a base. Therefore, we think it is the Philippines. And... Um, I kind of got this from an author named uh, Kenneth Davis, right? And he says that basically 
it was kind of overconfidence and even American racism yeah. because there's most American military minds expected Japanese to come into Philippines um, mainly because they believe that Pearl Harbor, the naval fortifications on Pearl Harbor were just too strong to attack. Yeah, and the Japanese, problem. yeah, the Japanese just, you know, they wouldn't have the guts to do that. And also they were way too far from Japanese mainland. Yeah. So they thought the Japanese would take the easy way out and attack the closest American base to them, which would have been Philippines. And another thing that's kind of crazy is that many Americans actually believe that, uh, and I kind of looked into this because I was like, what? They, they kind of dismissed the Japanese as combat pilots because yeah. they presumed that they were nearsighted. Kind of safe, yeah. Um, again, yeah, kind of, you know, because of race tendencies, which is, which is crazy. Well, they learned that very quickly. That's false when they're fighting them up in the... Yeah, in the very quickly. Yeah, but we'll get to that. Yeah, they, they didn't believe... Um, they were taught that if you attack from a certain angle, the Japanese pilot wouldn't be able to see you. So yeah. when they, they actually were taught this. So um, a lot of times then when the pilots would attack from the angle, they quickly learn, no, the Japanese pilot's seeing me and he's in the movie, he's, he's adapting. So this is, not, this is not working. And they had that sort of thing on both sides. But um, to go back to what you were saying about how Pearl Harbor, one, it was, they said it was too small for submarines to get in. And the big thing, it was actually, it's actually a pretty shallow harbor. So they, um, they said the torpedoes, if you did drop them from a plane, they would get stuck in the... Um, in like the bedrock, in, in like the bottom of the yeah. harbor. So the Japanese do, I, I guess we can get to this now, is they come yeah. up with this plan, and they showed us very well actually in the in the Ben Affleck Pearl Harbor movie. All they get is basically two pieces of wood, and they just crisscross it, and they, and they just nail it on to the um, torpedoes, so it makes it more buoyant. So when they drop it in the water, this the buoyancy just kind of forces the torpedo, kind of sucks it back up, pulls it back up to the surface, and now it can just yeah. race right across. And it's really just two pieces of wood, that's it. Super, super simple, and that suddenly makes Pearl Harbor open to torpedo attack, right? Just right there. And said before it was so far away. This is when the battleship is still looked at as as being the naval ultimate weapon. The aircraft carrier doesn't become that what what it becomes really after Pearl Harbor. Yep. And um, so let's kind of get you know let's get closer to the December um, or as basically zero hour, right? Um, which is what kind of becomes known as. What we do know from these magic codes, one, we know that we're actually missing and cannot track those Japanese aircraft carriers. Like we know no, that they, they went somewhere. They lost them. They don't know. Because they yeah, went we lost silent. We had no idea where exactly. they were. We knew they were where they used to be, and now they're not there. So we know they're out there, but again, it's uh, it's got to be the Philippines. So that's where they send extra um, it's military, you know, to, military the to the Philippines. And the Philippines, gets, the Philippines does get attacked. On December 8th, they get attacked and then they will yeah. eventually get invaded. So they felt like they were not going to attack the Philippines. It's just the first attack doesn't take place at the Philippines. Yep. Um, and there's another thing here, too, that what these magic um, codes did find out is that Japanese were telling their spies in Hawaii at Pearl Harbor to draw out maps of Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Um, and put them into grids and to kind of figure out how the ships were, were you know, I wouldn't say the word parked, but I guess yeah. I'm going to... Well, not only you, they know where they were, and not only that, Pete, there was actually a harbor in Japan that is very similar to Pearl Harbor. It's slightly smaller than them, and they actually practiced flying that way. And each of the pilots was given a different um, photograph of, of importance of what the ship looked like. So you knew what yeah. ship it was and for uh, how you're going to, you know, attacking. Yeah. So let's get to it, right? Um, 
Pearl Harbor, December, you know, it's a Sunday, right? And that was purposely um, too, to be attacked on a Sunday. We, yeah. we knew that um, most American servicemen sleep in on Sunday and they go to church. That was what they did. Or they'd be out late partying a lot. So it was purposely done um, to attack on a Sunday morning where they knew uh, they wouldn't be at their post necessarily ready to defend. Yep. All right, so let's get going. You want to get started on the well, actual attack? Yeah, we can go even before that. As the planes are coming in, they are picked up by radar. I'm yes, sure they think it's that. like thing, right? B-29s coming in from California. Yeah. And they actually, they have this paper. I remember, I saw it. And they have pictures of it. I think they have a copy of it, too, at the museum at Pearl Harbor. But it says on it, um, the radio, the not the radio, the radar um, um, operator sees this, phones it into his superiors. They say, oh, it's a bunch of B-29s coming back from the mainland. And he actually writes on it, that's a hell of a lot of B-29s. These are, these are like 350 planes. There's a ton of planes. This one's supposed to be like 17 B-29s coming back. He's like, well, that's a hell of a lot of B-29s. And it's the first time that uh, enemy aircraft are detected by um, American radar. It's the first time this happened, and we do nothing. Because, again, it's just not ready. And even before that, the attack actually starts. With the USS Ward, I'm sure you saw that, right, Pete? Yeah, the Americans actually yeah. fired the first, first shot of World of War that. II. Yep, we actually fired yeah. the first shots. Yeah, well, for our World War II, at least. For yeah. World War II, yeah. The, the Ward at 6:37 a.m. Mm-hmm. Right, USS Ward. Um, essentially, it's a U.S. you know destroyer that's patrolling the waters, and it sinks a uh, like a small submarine. They find like a small Japanese submarine near like, the entrance to Pearl Harbor. That they were sending six of these, excuse me, that they were sending into Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And they're like, what is that? So they sink it. And they're like, all right, something's up. So even then they send messages back to Pearl Harbor. And they're kind of like ignored. Like, yeah, we don't really know. Yeah, it wasn't a, no submarine's going to come into the harbor. You, see, you probably shot, killed a whale or something like that. What, what, what's the matter with you? Um, and it's actually not until 2004 that they prove that. They get a couple surviving members of the uh, USS Ward. They go to the exact spot where they said they fired it, you know, like according to the ship logs. They send one of those little like rovers down there. And they they find the midget submarine down there, yeah. And they actually bring it up, and it's at it's in the museum now at Pearl Harbor, the midget submarine, which is just like it was just two it was just two guys in a battery powered sub. They were supposed to basically um, blow up a ship that was trying to leave the harbor to like kind of box everything in. None of the midget subs uh, did any damage. They were all sunk or destroyed. Some of them washed up on shore after the attack, and you know the they were the first prisoner American uh, Japanese American prisoners of the war. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
Yeah. So U.S. military, uh, U.S. military obviously was unable to correctly interpret this information, right? They kind of dropped the bomb, no pun intended. Um, wow, I, I, now it seems like there was an intended pun. But when it comes to Pearl Harbor, now Japan's surprise attack, December 7th, 1941, it sinks um, or damages eight battleships, three cruisers, four destroyers, six other vessels. The attack also destroys 188 airplanes and kills about 2,403 Americans with another 1,173 being injured. Um, it was a devastating so, attack. And one of the reasons why all those airplanes were destroyed was, again, going back to that racism, they were worried about, there's a large Japanese population in Hawaii, so they were worried about spies. That's what they thought the biggest threat was in, in Hawaii was the Japanese spies. They knew they were there. So in order to, like, we got to keep these airplanes safe. So they had them all lined up wingtip to wingtip so that they could like be watched easier. But when you yeah. line them all wingtip to wingtip, then when the planes are coming overhead, it makes it easy target practice. And that's one reason why yeah. all these planes get destroyed. So five Americans actually managed to get airborne um, during this attack, right? Uh, Army Air Corps pilots. Um, no one really knows for certain how many planes they shut down. But we know for a fact that two of the pilots, uh, Ken Taylor and George Welch, were created. Um, credited with at least seven of the 29 Japanese aircraft that were brought down by American guns. And um, what's interesting is that the Welch uh, guy, Welch, Welch, I think, was recommended for Medal of Honor for his heroism, for being able to get a plane up there and start like fighting back. But he was denied because his commanding officer said that he took off without orders. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, it kind of shows the bureaucracy of everything that was going on at that time. You know, if you didn't have your orders, you weren't told... You know, we I can't do anything until higher command tells me to do something. Nowadays, if they pick something up on radar, that's going to be reacted to regardless. Yeah, it's just, they learn that unfortunately a little bit too late, and um, so that's just how that basically you know worked out. It was it was a two it was a two wave attack. That's something I think we should talk about. Just mention, um, and there was supposed to be a third wave. That third wave doesn't get launched, and that is a big deal. That that third wave never happens again. I don't want to get too much into military. But that third wave was supposed to attack the um, oil fields at Pearl Harbor. The oil fields at Pearl Harbor were never attacked. And because of that, because of that, that would have taken a year to rebuild. That would really would have changed what we could do. Because I know you talk about all these battleships that got sunk. There's only two battleships that were not repaired and fighting the Japanese again within a year. Yeah. And the, only, you know, and the most famous one is obviously the, um, the Arizona, which is still there which we'll yeah. get to. We can talk about that a little bit later. Um, so what also wasn't important at the time, which was a big blow to the Japanese, were American aircraft carriers, the Lexington, the Enterprise, and the Saratoga. We're not there. They were actually out to sea, right? And that's what scared Yamamoto. That's why he did, calls off the third wave. He doesn't know where they are. So he doesn't, he's like, I can't have my fleet get this. The Japanese fleet get destroyed. The Americans know we're here now. Let's get back to Japan. We achieved the victory. That's kind of like what his yeah. mindset is. You know that, but that third wave—if he would have launched that third wave—that would have changed, made the war a little bit more difficult, at least in those early years, yeah. and leave Hawaii more open to attack. So, uh, President, you know, Roosevelt um, gets the news, meets with the cabinet that night, right? And the next day, he asks Congress for a declaration of war. Speech, and right. you know, the very, you know, famous or rather infamous. Uh, Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, the date which will live in infamy. What's really crazy is that every single year I look at newspapers, the front pages of newspapers, like I'll go to Starbucks and, you know, they always have like the 
newspaper things that sit in there. Um, and I look at front pages on December 7th and you know, it's the day that shall live in infamy. will never be forgotten. They don't talk about it. It's, oh no, no. You put on the history channel on this year. They're, they're, they're showing, they're showing, uh, they don't even have specials on it. They were showing, um, swamp people or whatever that was. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things, you know, they just don't talk about it as much. And this was the 79th anniversary this year. Um, and we'll get to that. You know, what gets me? you know what gets me though? Like, you know, right now they're still reading off the names of everyone on 9-11. And, and again, another time the United States was, was viciously attacked. And we're growing further and further from it. Like my students that I have this, this year, they weren't alive when 9-11 yeah, happened. Yeah, they weren't alive happened, yeah. So to them, it's, you know, it's just another thing in their textbook. And, you know, we're trying to keep that alive so we don't forget because it, it kind of altered Altered the paradigm, just kind of of what the United States stands for and everything. I changes and everything. Is- I think that's why I find or we find it so interesting. Is you can look at the U.S. history before Pearl Harbor and the U.S. history after Pearl Harbor, and it's a very different thing. It used to be why is the United States not getting involved in this? Now it's why is the United States getting involved in this? Right, international affairs and stuff like that. It changes totally after this moment, and it kind yeah, of goes and- um, with I guess that famous. It's debated if it's a quote. It used to be, yes, it was. Maybe it wasn't, right? The, I'm sure you saw the Yamamoto quote, right? What basically happens is this attack happens, like Peter, I described, right? All these people are being killed. It's, it's brutal, right? There are stories of individuals. I remember watching this special guy's talking about it. He reached in the war to grab piece. The, the water's on fire because all the oil, right? And this guy reached in the war to pull, out, to pull someone out. And as he pulls them out, he grabs his arm and he pulls up and all of the flesh in the guy's arm just rips right off. Like, like you would like when you eat like a chicken wing. You know what I mean? Just yeah. pulling up and he's like, well, my God, it's like stories like that. That is just so brutal. And so because these men were attacked like this. And after this whole attack happens is when the Japanese, that last note comes in and says, um, negotiations have broken down. We now declare war on you. Right. Even though it wasn't supposed to be, it was supposed to happen before the attack happens. And then it was basically, we were, they were supposed to declare war on us. The attack happens like half an hour later. That's how it was planned. But because the, um, at the embassy, the Japanese typist was having a hard time translating it from um, Japanese to English, he, uh, it was handed after the attack. So Pearl Harbor is burning. The Japanese are, back, are going back towards Japan, and then they hand us that note. And then the Japanese diplomat is in the office with the American diplomat still talking peace at this point. And that's, um, yeah, that's crazy. And there's a famous, there's uh, an infamous scene, basically, they knew each other. Like they were actually kind of friendly towards each other. The clerk comes in, talks to the um, diplomat, the American diplomat, tells him what's going on. He looks at it. He's like, oh my God. He goes back into the room. The Japanese guy like stands up and he's just, and the American guy just yells at him, get out. He's like, but you know, he says, just get out. Because he kind of knows now what happened, right? Like yeah. that. It was all just a ruse, like misconception and stuff like that. And um, yeah, so it, it, it changes everything. And when Americans find out of the Americans find out about that, that's what really galvanizes this whole revenge on revenge for Pearl Harbor. Remember Pearl Harbor that is going to bring the country together at that point that has never happened before. Yeah. So when the closest we, to it was the Alamo and that was only Texas. It only brought that Texas. really wasn't an American thing. Yeah. And a lot of the um, posters for Pearl Harbor um, at the time actually has a quote from the Gettysburg Address in it. It shows like the Arizona, like a burning Arizona, the torn up American flag. And it says, we hold highly that these um, should not sacrifice in vain, right? Sacrifice their lives in vain. Not in vain. 
you have yep. not died in vain. It's that it's that quote from the Gettysburg Address, and it's put on there because they knew Americans know the Gettysburg Address. You know, put down and get that propaganda and stuff like that. You're seeing the propaganda all around the country at this point. You have Bugs Bunny fighting the Japanese. You have Superman fighting the Japanese in the comic books. I'm sorry, I'm talking kind of fast. A lot of these, a lot of these uh, <laughs> cartoons are actually you can't find them anymore. No, not all of them. By the way, the Warner Brothers collection. You won't. It, it's not on there. There's like four or five. Yep. Of, some other ones aren't there for different reasons. But I've seen the one oh, yeah. when. Bugs Bunny fights the Japanese soldier on the island. I actually have them. So yeah. this was so these cartoons are considered racist and insensitive by today's standards. But uh, they they were released um, on VHS in like mid '80s, and one of my old colleagues that I used to work with a long time ago uh, gave it to me, and I actually transferred it over into digital. So I have them. Um, but again, today by no standards could you show that to, to no, children God. or anybody. But anyway, so the wars the, uh, the, with the United States. Um, declares war uh if you know on december 8th and the senate votes 82 to 0 and the house is 388 yes to one no for declaration of war and the no vote is by jeanette rankin and it's interesting because she's one of the only um, females in the house but also what's interesting is she was the only no vote not only for us entering World War II, but us also entering World War One. Yeah, and she was a pacifist. That's basically the reason why yeah. she didn't believe in the war. Um, which is interesting. And although Japan and Germany were allies, right? Hitler was not bound to declare war against the United States. He didn't even um, know about the, the, this plan either. Apparently, from what we yeah. learned, he was he was happy yeah. about it. But he, yeah. you know, some of his other generals were not happy. Well, they didn't really care, but. Hitler then declares war in the United States on what December eighth, I believe, the very next day. Yes, right after within a day. And yeah, no. Well, he was frustrated with the American like navy attacks and German submarines. That was the premise. He was looking for something else after like Stalingrad and everything. But it's interesting because like we didn't declare war in Germany; they declared war in us, like within a day. And we're like, wait, what? What just happened? So now we were in a two front war. You know, where within forty eight hours before that, there was no. Yeah, indication that that was going to be that that's was going what to be happened, and we succeeded in this two front war. And well, that's a, you know other stuff we can yeah. talk about. But I remember you know from my grandfather telling me stories that um, I asked him as I got older, like what were you doing at Pearl Harbor? And he says that he was um, he was working. He worked at, like a fruit stand. He was like getting ready to go deliver fruit, and then he he was uh, on the radio, and there was like a football game or something on the radio. And it just said, you know, those famous words that you hear whenever something happens. We interrupt this broadcast. This is, you didn't have like 24-hour news networks. Yeah. There was no Instagram, Twitter that's giving you all this information. And basically it just says, you know, newsflash, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt to address the nation later on. And that's it. And it's just, then it goes back to the register. And you're like, wait, what just happened? And then people are hearing yeah, people about are like, it. wait, what words? They're you know, talking, people are going to sign up for the draft. And people are being drafted, signing up to go and fight. And that's it. World War II is, you know, officially... World War Two, I guess you could say now. For us, yeah, it's yeah. a world now. And I get back um, to the other thing. I'm sorry, Pete. This is where Yamamoto finds out that the declaration of war was not declared till afterwards, and he he kind of says, you know, I understand the Americans. That's when he supposedly says this quote, um, where they're like, you know, you did all this, you did a great. They were praising him. Yamamoto simply says, "I fear all we have done is awaking a sleeping giant and fed it with a terrible yeah. resolve." I always like to yeah. bring that up in this talk, and I don't know. It's kind of just like. An interesting quote, like you kind of said this, and you know, we just poke so like a tiger, you want to say it. Yeah. Did we really do what we wanted to do here? You know? And from this point forward, the United States goes into a two-pronged war. We essentially fight two wars. Uh, it is decided, which is why, so I guess we could get into this. After Pearl Harbor, uh, some people believe, some historians believe that 
FDR knew that we were going to be attacked and he let it happen because he was looking for a way to get us into the World War II conflict. He saw, you, um, he saw, he saw the, real, the real threat, without a doubt. Yep. And therefore, you know, once this happens, once we declare war by December 8th, it is decided that we're going to concentrate on Europe first. Yeah. And Churchill even like, knows this, right? That's why Churchill supposedly... Um, like excited. Well, Churchill yeah. loved it. And there's this story yeah. I saw with Churchill that um, they, they, they give him this, they tell him, they're like, listen, you know, Japan just bombed Pearl Harbor. The American Pacific fleet is at the bottom of the ocean. Hitler's at our door, right? France is defeated. And he, he's like, well, the Americans are in the war now, right? And he's like, yeah. And supposedly he goes over and opens up a um, bottle of like 100-year-old scotch or whatever. And he pours it. And they're like, oh, man, he must be. He, he wanted to save that for a good occasion. This is not good. He's like, you know, probably like, oh, crap, you know. He was hoping America was going to save us. But now they just got their fleet destroyed. And he just pours it. He supposedly hopes to toast. He says, gentlemen, we just won the war. Yeah, crazy. Crazy. Right? like now the United States in this war, like when he gets that speech, like, you know, until the old, until the new world comes and saves the old that he gives and talks about in, the, in 1940, he kind of knows, right? The U.S. is bringing their muscle in. And this sounds like a very pro-U.S. Uh, podcast, obviously, Talk. today. But yeah, <laughs> Talk. We're trying. We're trying. Yeah, we're doing everything. <laughs> Captain America. Uh, yeah, even though Russia won World War II. But yeah, let's not oh, get yeah, into yeah, that. Right not, yeah. that. That's true. Like, that's what I would, yeah, that, that, that's a yeah. good argument. Yeah. The war, uh, the United States enters the war. We wind up concentrating um, on Europe first. And then as it was during this time, Japan is quick. They start like taking over island after island after oh. They basically control the Pacific within like the first six months. They have, and, that, they have that barrier that they wanted to make. Yep. And the, before we move on and talk about, you know, some of the intricacies and maybe fun facts, you might want to call them off Pearl Harbor. I think we need to touch upon uh, the Doolittle Raid. Mm-hmm. That was the American um, we, we needed yes. to do some sort of response to Pearl Harbor. And what was it yep. going to be? Because American morale was low. They needed some sort of morale booster. And they wanted to strike at the Japanese, too. And the Doolittle Raid was an example of that. Yeah. So just to do a little raid, just real quick. Essentially what happened is we um, kind of modified bombers. Uh, because a bomber had never taken off from an aircraft carrier. The B-29. And Japan, yeah. And it was B-29. And, and Japan was way too far um, out of range for us to fly our bombers there, but they did this for morale purposes. Like we needed to show Americans that, yeah, we're going to get right into this. We're going to strike back. And what we did is they modified and stripped down these B-29 bombers. They put them on aircraft carriers. They brought the aircraft carriers as close as they could to Japanese mainland. And, you know, this was in charge of, um, that's why it's Doolittle because Doolittle was in charge of it. And essentially the premise was they're going to fly over Japan. They're going to drop bomb loads over Japan, and then they were going to crash land and or try to at least not. There's no way they couldn't land them back on aircraft carriers. Not that they were going to come yeah. back either. And um, it was Japan, we, not Japan, China. Yeah, right? China. We wanted to launch them from Soviet Union at first, but Stalin said no. Yeah, but sure. one crew does wind up landing in the Soviet Union. One crew does, and um, they're interrogated for a while. Then eventually they return to the United States. Stalin keeps the plane though. He says, "I'm keeping the B-29." <laughs> so like you sure. know reorganized stuff but yeah um, a lot of them are captured some of them are actually captured and um tried and hanged by the japanese the doula race because it was successful and it basically it's yeah. much smaller attack the, the interesting thing about that like you said they stripped them down they actually put like broom handles from um instead of machine guns to make it look like it they, they, they were so worried about having enough fuel with all the they had reduced the weight to get to japan and um they actually 
attached to the Japanese friendship medals that they gave at those ceremonies when they were uh, having the peace ceremonies, the uh, you know, negotiations, they tied them to the uh, bombs that they dropped on Japan. Crazy. And that's just showing that anger, right? That anger that they had for you know, what happened. I like to talk about anger. I, um, when I was doing research for the World War II book that I have coming out, which comes out in March, again, another, oh, I, I hate that. to cheap do pop, cheap pop. Yeah. My hometown actually brought in um, from Picatinny Arsenal, uh, which is in New Jersey as well. They brought in a bomb to the local theater in my hometown. And it was like a bond drive, you know, to try to get savings bonds. You got to sign the bomb, you know, and it would be dropped and delivered to Japan, it said. So with the price of your ticket, there was an actual bomb sitting in the movie theater, right, area. You would walk in, you buy a ticket, and then you would buy your, you know, your U.S. bond, and then you would sign the bomb, which would be delivered to Japan. That would is... never go over today. Just imagine the insurance type of liability today. You have a live bomb. Yeah. You're gonna have, have your kids go and sign a bomb. <laughs> I was like, "What is happening?" Crazy. I thought I was. Well, that just shows a different different time, but um, just the, yeah. the anger. I, I think that just shows the anger that we wanted some sort of revenge, and Pearl Harbor was supposed to be. I mean, Doolittle Raid was supposed to be that beginning of that revenge that they had and the ultimate revenge is really um i guess i don't want to fa- go that too much but it's the atomic bomb i mean a lot of historians argue if pearl harbor isn't a sneak attack the atomic bomb doesn't get dropped i but, guess you could make that argument. i, I, I mean i'm not sure i, I agree I, with that argument but you no, can but make it. argument oh it's one it's one of the reasons it, it's it's a yeah. contributing factor i wouldn't say it's the main reason not even close um yeah. but it's one of those that still have that anger type of that, that like we're really going to show you like at least people have how, how, kind of how they rationalize it, you know. Yep. So, um, you got any uh, interesting tidbits about Pearl well, Harbor? The interesting that... thing I like about Pearl Harbor is one that I um I have some you know stories from when I went there, um, years ago, but uh, as they take it's still an active military base today, and the water is crystal clear. And when they take you to the um, Arizona Memorial, which is actually built by funds that um Elvis provided in the 1950s. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, he performed a concert and he gave all the money to build this. Um, he said, "He said, you know, the, the battleship was just there. They actually cut off the um, guns of the battleship and put that at the entrance of the harbor, like during the war, to like in case anything else tried to come, because they thought there would be another attack, just like shoot, you know, shoot, shoot the Japanese. Um, but you actually go to the, um, Pearl Harbor today and you, um, you can get a ticket. You get 15 minutes at the Arizona Memorial. Then the next group comes in. In certain days, you know, they put you in a little ferry. It takes you out there, and as you get there." Um, you see these, uh, you get to the actual Arizona, you can actually step over the ship, you can look at it and stuff like that. It's still leaking oil today. And that's because it was filled up with oil on December 6th, and it's still dro- little drops of oil. And they basically say at the thing that um, a lot of people believe it's going to go on for hundreds of years still leaking oil. And it's not enough to do any um, damage to like, the sea life, there's fish everywhere. But they say that it's going to keep on dripping oil until the last Pearl Harbor survivor dies. These are actually are, you know, that number is coming down a lot every every year. I don't think they meet anymore. Um, but another interesting thing about the Arizona Memorial is every day they do lay a reef there at the time of the attack when the bomb dropped. And there's actually more names on the wall there than people that died in the Arizona. Because if you were on that ship, but you survived, um, after you passed away, it's a couple hundred sailors did this. You could have your yourself cremated. And then a Navy diver will take your ashes and actually entomb them in the Arizona with some of the 1,300 men that are still entombed in there that wow. didn't get out. So I thought that was kind of like an interesting uh, tidbit there. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 it was, it's, it was 
for me, it was a very emotional experience um, sitting yeah. going through there. And what's interesting is in 1999, they moved the um, USS Missouri into Pearl Harbor also. And what's interesting about that ship is that's where the Japanese signed their surrender agreement in World, end World War II. So what you have there is you have, they're right, they're right by each other. You have the start of World War II and the end of World War II, at least for the Americans, right next to each other. And then you can go on both ships. And you can actually stand in the exact spot where uh, the table was, where the, <clears throat> where the Japanese signed their surrender. It was yeah. just, you know, for me, it was a big deal. I remember my wife was like laughing at me like, all right, come on. But uh, yeah, it, no, it, I want to. I want to go there. It we were actually it's Hawaii. It was very nice, but um, yeah, it's a very interesting thing. And um, one there was another story that I remember uh, hearing there from like the tour guide, or where they um, they ha- they have on display a pistol, and what they say is they, they have the Japanese journal from this too. The pilot, the Japanese pilot, sees this marine, and this marine is just shooting at the planes with his pistol. He knows he's not going to you know shoot down a plane with his pistol; he's just fighting. And the pilot shoots and kills him. But he writes in journals like, you know, if the American, if the other Americans are as brave as this American, you know, this is going to be a longer war than what we're told. That's what he basically writes yeah. in the journal. So it's kind of, again, pro-America stuff there. But um, yeah. USA. But, yeah, but cool nonetheless. Yeah, it was an interest, interesting story, interesting tidbit, I, I thought, like seeing that. But yeah, like, again, Pearl Harbor is still an active military base today. So there's all this stuff going on there even today. And one thing that um, you kind of has come to my attention is that a lot of Japanese tourists mm. go to Harbor. I was going to get to that. Yes. When I was there, there was a lot. And funny, I don't know if it's funny or scary. I, I don't know what this is conceived. It was awkward when I was, for, I, I would say, because we, when you go, you have to go with a tour guide, right? You're not allowed on the ship without a tour guide. And it was a lot of mm-hmm. Japanese tourists. And that's fine. It's whatever. Um, yeah. But <laughs> you're supposed to be very quiet, they say. You know, you're supposed to be somber and quiet. And I guess the Japanese tour guide was, was being pretty loud when he was there, like talking, you know, he's speaking Japanese to the Japanese, to his tour group. And my tour group is there too. And the guy's talking and to be honest, I'm, I'm like, I'm too cool for this guy. I'm like, I'm a history teacher. I don't need to listen to what you're saying. You know what I mean? He's saying yeah. stuff. I'm like, yeah, you don't think I know that? All right. Well, anyway, but then at one point, so I'm looking, I'm taking a picture. I'm actually having my wife hold my, um, like grab onto my shirt. as I like lean over the bow of the ship to try to get other pictures. Because if I fall in yeah. the water, that's it. Like I'm going to get arrested. But, um, <laughs> And then all of a sudden, there's all this yelling going on. I'm like, what's going on? And the guy is screaming at the Japanese. Our tour guide is screaming at the Japanese tour guide to be quiet. And he's like, I wow. told you, you keep on doing this. This is not allowed. You're, 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 this is a somber place. And he's screaming at him at the top of his lungs. And the Japanese tour guide is yelling back in Japanese. And I'm just like, oh, my God. I'm like, I don't know if this is like, what is going on? It's just, you know, I, it was just a very surreal experience. Like, they're yelling at each other on the Arizona where these two countries went to war. Like. Very just awkward, very just like, I don't know what's going on. And then it just kind of, then it just kind of I guess they kind of realized what was going on, the two of them. They're like, oh my God. And they just kind of stopped and went separate ways. But it was just very just like surreal. Then remember someone else being like, yeah, that happens a lot. And I'm just like, wow. I'm like, that, that, that's just like awkward. But I don't know. Wow. I know that was a funny story, awkward story, whatever you want to call it. But I, that, that's something yeah. I always remember. Poetic, poetic even? Yeah, poetic, yeah. Odd. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that just about does it. Again, you know, if we were to continue after Doolittle Raid, we would have to get into, um, you know, U.S. Uh, island hopping campaigns and uh, all that stuff. Midway, and I, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I feel yeah, like we kind of covered some of that stuff be- when we were talking about um, dropping of the atomic weapon. 
So I don't think we need to really go into yeah, that. But no, yeah, people listen. Check out the other yeah. podcasts. You know, we don't want to get too much into that stuff. But I know you were talking about a lot, Pete. You know, the fact that Roosevelt wanted was it like a backdoor way to get into Europe, and that's what they. It's actually our note that says the United States wants Japan to make their first move. But again, every, they were simply, and that kind of spawned a lot of the conspiracy theories. I think. Again, they they everyone they expected it to be the Philippines. That's that's what I would always um, kind of was able to find out, and it's they expected it to be the Philippines. That's what we were preparing for, and that's really one reason why the Japanese did. They they wanted to take out our fleet, so we couldn't go on the offensive. Doing attacking the Philippines wouldn't do that. There's our Pearl Harbor episode, twentieth yeah. episode, nearly twenty years. Our first conversation ever. Look at that. Pearl Harbor. Hopefully, yeah. it won't be the last. <laughs> no, no, well, yeah, I'm up to that. Hopefully, we didn't bore you guys too much with that one. I don't think so. So no, I don't think that's good. No, again, one of the. It's uh, your thing. Yeah, one of my. Yeah. If I see a Pearl Harbor special on or something like that, or I'll even watch the movie, to be honest, a lot of times, like, even though it's not really the best. I have to see Midway. I, I bought it. I haven't seen a new Midway yet. Midway. Um, Again, it was sales for a future podcast. We're going to do, do history movie reviews. Yes, we're working on that. History we're working reviews. towards yes, that. Yes, yes. Teasers, teasers, yeah. guys. So, uh, well, first of all, I guess we want to thank everyone for, for sticking with us and listening to us. And if you're joining us for the first time, yeah. then welcome. Um, yeah, the, uh, the response has been great. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Our ratings and responses have been great and our podcast getting downloaded more and more and more. So hit yeah, like thank you. Hit that download, you know, you yeah, look for us on um, social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. Yeah. Feel free to reach out. Make sure you guys subscribe, uh, click the subscribe button or, you know, whether you're on Apple podcasts or Spotify, uh, that way you ensure that you actually get our newest episodes quickest. Uh, it doesn't give us any money. We actually don't get any money for this whatsoever. Yeah, no, this fun. Not, we don't do this to get paid. <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah we're, not at all. we're not getting paid. We're just um, however, if you do want our newest episodes, I noticed that, you know, if you don't click subscribe, you may, you know, there's a, a little delay. So again, follow us at, uh, history teachers talking podcast on Facebook, and you could visit us at history teachers talking podcast.com. And again, you know, thank you for listening guys. And, uh, I guess, uh, we'll talk again next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.